Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who leaves Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do. Well, uh, thank you for inviting us to have uh, a little alcohol. I, I don't have any beer left, but I do have the last vino in the house. Probably quite bitter by now, but we're going to see. <laughs> well, it, uh, wine only gets better with age, haven't you heard? And I, I know that's especially true of like the cheap $12 wine that you're probably drinking. <laughs> yes, it's true. I'm on a budget these days. Um, <laughs> earlier last year, I was I was splurging 18 perhaps even $20 <laughs> on my trips to the wine rack. But now, yeah, we're, we're back to 12 <laughs> um, Well, when I, when I spoke to you earlier today, I was pretty stressed out because there was a lot on my uh, plate, but I felt like... You know, even though it's Thursday, I thought I'll have one beer because I actually did get through the mountain of things that I had to do today. And it's, uh, you know, it's only Thursday, but it's been a pretty productive week. So I felt like, uh, you know, knocking back a cold one while we uh, while we recorded this. And you, the listeners out there, you can crack open a cold one, too, or a non-alcoholic beverage if that suits you better. And pretend you're the third mic. Pretend you're the third pal in the room, just just kicking back after a long week. We should probably officially start the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Michael and us. We're, uh, we sound a little laid back here, but we do have an actual show planned for you. I'll tell you about uh, some of the stuff that I've been working on this week. Something I did today was uh, work on a piece uh, partly inspired by uh, the Netflix series Dirty Money. Have you seen any episodes from that? I have not. No, I haven't even heard of it. It's uh, it's quite good. So it's it's a Netflix series. It was uh, one of the executive producers was Alex Gibney, the documentarian um, who, you know, did Going Clear, the Scientology documentary and a number of other things. And, uh, you know, each each episode is uh, concerned with a different sort of instance of corporate malfeasance or corruption or, you know, scandal or something like that. And the topics are pretty varied. You know, there is one about uh, I, I haven't watched uh, this one, but there's one that's about the theft over several months, I believe, of more than 3000 tons of maple syrup in Canada. But uh, there's also ones about Jared Kushner's slumlord empire. Uh, there's one about a drug company uh, implicated in an awful price gouging scheme. Uh, there's a really good episode on Donald Trump, actually, called Confidence Man. I mean, the subtext of it is basically like he's been doing the same con like ever since he you know started and and essentially like the political con he pulled is exactly the same as like all of his business cons um i think i know but how would you define that con in like two sentences well he essentially creates a lot of hype around things and then the hype consumes you know the hype overrides the success or failure even narrowly defined of said thing he himself then becomes the story in the whole thing and and this kind of persona he has as a businessman ends up mattering a whole lot more than, you know, whatever awful scheme he was doing and whether it, you know, failed or not, as, as so many of them did. But I think the best episode in the series that I've seen is this one on the Wells Fargo uh, scandal. And, and I should say, you know, um, this is the kind of show that I feel like we could do a treatment of it on our show, but, you know, mostly I think it's it's just pretty good. I mean, it's, it's pretty good populist storytelling about these cases you know, it's very clear that the the filmmakers have sympathies which are which are not with uh, you know their primary subjects. I've been struck how so many of these scandals, even though they're very they're, you know they're quite varied, 
they often have exactly the same structure. I mean, basically, you know, somewhere in the mix, you have a capitalist or a group of capitalists, or in you know one or two cases, you know, a political figure who has ties to capitalists, uh, as in the as in the case of the episode about uh, Malaysia's former prime minister, which is quite interesting. You have capitalists, and they are trying to maximize profit by any means necessary, often by circumventing legal or if not legal ethical impediments. And, uh, you know, who gets hurt? Uh, People at the bottom, whether it's, you know, uh, the citizens of Malaysia in one episode, whether it's people that are unfortunate enough to be renters in one of Jared Kushner's properties, workers at a company, uh, consumers who are patronizing a bank, whatever. And in a lot of the cases, you also kind of get to see some form of justice meted out or the exploited fighting back. And And all these things are true about the Wells Fargo episode, which if you haven't seen the series, I recommend you start there. Wells Fargo is just an incredible story. After the financial crisis, you know, Wells Fargo kind of wasn't as caught up in it as other big uh, financial firms, other big banks. And so it, it kind of had this reputation as the golden child of banking. Um, it got all these like awards. It got a lot of positive press attention. And, um, you know, it exuded this kind of folksy charm. A lot of the branding was sort of this like, I don't know, Wild West stagecoach kind of stuff. And it was sort of like, ah, this is just your friendly neighborhood bank. And, you know, we're out to do good. Anyway, you hear in the documentary from a couple former employees, um, some of them are very inspiring people, um, about how, you know, they started working for Wells Fargo because, you know, they, they thought it was this great company and, uh, you know, they wanted to live the American dream by working in a bank, you know, and they felt really important when they, you know, it felt like a really big deal when they got their job at Wells Fargo. And, you know, you find out that actually they were employed as tellers and they made like $11 an hour. But furthermore, it was, uh, you know, uncovered that Wells Fargo, its business model for a number of years involved uh, just signing people up, signing customers up to as many accounts as possible, inventing reasons why somebody needed another account, forging information to create accounts, you know, just like outright fraud. But for the individual employees, this was manifested in this kind of culture of hustle where like every morning there'd be like a huddle and their manager would, would go around and say like, okay, how many new accounts are you going to, are you going to sign up today? And then, you know, people would be punished for not fulfilling their quotas. And so former employees are talking about how they, you know, they got every single one of their family members signed up. They would end up calling the same family members back and saying, okay, well, like I have to meet my quota. Like, can we just please get you a savings account? Like I'll do all the paperwork, whatever. So, you know, this kind of behavior manifested itself in in all kinds of uh, disgusting ways. I mean, people were also signed up for credit cards they didn't ask for. Black and Hispanic homeowners in particular were overcharged for mortgages. I mean, really, really disgusting behavior. And and some of the cases, you know, the employees themselves who are uh, speaking in the documentary, you know, a lot of them are clearly very traumatized by some of the stuff they had to do because, of course, it was them, not the managers or the executives who were, they became the instruments of the firm's unethical practices. One of them who's a, who's a, a refugee from Iraq tells this uh, awful story about uh, a guy who, who came into the bank and he was dying and he was getting, uh, you know, he was getting these monthly fees and he wanted to close uh, his account so he'd no longer get these fees. Um, you know, it was costing him $15 a month and he was poor and he was dying. So he didn't want to be charged as $15. And the guy's manager, the teller's manager said, well, our solution to this is we're going to set him up another account. We're not going to cancel his account. Um, And then we're going to, I don't know, do some kind of like chicanery so that, uh, you know, move money from one to the other or something so that he's not charged any fees, something like that. 
but the guy came in to close his account and he, he laughed with like a second account on the promise this was going to save him his $15 a month. Anyway, uh, about a month later, the guy's sister came to the bank and said, well, my brother died and here's a death certificate. And, uh, and I, you know, I just like to close out his accounts and I guess collect whatever the $10 or whatever that was left in them. And it turned out that whatever bullshit they'd done with his accounts, you know, he'd actually had a check bounce or something and it had cost him more money than he had. So the bank, whatever the bank did actually, you know, not only did it not save him his $15, it actually like cost him any money he had left. I mean, absolutely despicable behavior. Um, and it all it all trickled down from the top. Anyway, the, the reason this kind of piqued my interest and uh, the thing I wrote about it um, should be out uh, probably by the time this airs or, or shortly after. But, you know, it got me thinking about a passage in Barack Obama's memoir, which I reviewed, I don't know, six or seven months ago, uh, which we've talked about on the show before and which I think is really the key passage in the book. And it's the one where Obama is talking about his administration's response to the financial crisis. And he basically says, you know, well, the public wanted, you know, they wanted Old Testament justice. You know, they wanted bankers locked up, etc. Um, but ultimately, we had to ensure the stability of the financial markets. And, you know, we couldn't just rewrite the rules to satisfy, you know, some lust people had to see punishment meted out. And he says, you know, um, you know, he lists off at one point a bunch of the things people uh, wanted him to do, nationalize banks, redefine criminal statutes to prosecute executives, letting banks collapse, perhaps. And he says that doing any of these things, this is a direct quote, would have required a violence to the social order, a wrenching of political and economic norms that almost certainly would have made things worse. And the reason I thought about this after watching the Wells Fargo episode is because the CEO who presided over the Wells Fargo fiasco, he got fined uh, 17 and a half million, which I believe was the largest uh, fine of this kind that, that had ever been uh, given out at the time. Uh, I looked him up today. This was back, I think, in 2016, if I if I have that right. I looked him up today to see how he's doing. He's since lost another $70 million in uh, forfeitures and, and various other things. And he's banned from serving in, uh, from working in the financial industry for the rest of his life. Um, now that all sounds pretty bad, but just the value of the stock that he left with alone is $80 million. Uh, he has another 60 million in salaries and bonuses he took with him. And his pension is worth almost $23 million. So there's no, you know, he's not going to spend any time in prison, you know, and his official spin on this, of course, was that this was a few bad apples or whatever. The company had this, this spin. It's, it can't be said uh, for sure if he knew exactly what was going on. But as several people in the documentary say, if he didn't know, he absolutely should have known. And what's abundantly clear is that all of this trickled down from the top. This is what the company was doing. Uh, and it was doing this as part of a, some kind of a conscious strategy. I don't want to sit here and unpack everything about the Obama administration's response to the financial crisis because we'd be here for hours. But it occurred to me revisiting that passage after watching this episode about Wells Fargo that it was in some ways even worse than I'd registered when I originally wrote the uh, the review that I, I did with Nathan Robinson in Current Affairs a few months back. Obama's line about how the public wanted Old Testament justice, as if people wanting to see bankers locked up was just about some sort of like formless popular rage or something and it wasn't going to lead to anything constructive and you know you watch enough episodes of this series and you really start thinking like none of these people ever face real consequences if you're as rich as the as the kinds of people who are able to carry out these kinds of corporate scams 
the people hurt by these things in some cases will never recover or that, you know, they have to start new careers, they lose their job, they face discipline. Wells Fargo, for example, fired more than 8,000 people over just a few years um, for allegedly failing to meet their quotas, although it seems like one of the people who was fired for this, who's interviewed in the documentary, was actually fired because she was a whistleblower about the company's practices. I'm sure that happened in a number of other cases as well. But I mean, so it occurs to me, you know, what is the deterrent if you are somebody this rich? Like, what is going to happen to you if you pull this kind of thing? Probably not very much. I mean, paying out tens of millions of dollars in a settlement, I mean, that's like if you or I had to pay like a parking fine or something. I mean, it's maybe a little more like a bad parking fine, you know, but it's <laughs> it's not it's not very much money. It's it's pocket change. What is the deterrent? I mean, you might have to go in front of a Senate committee and be yelled at by Elizabeth Warren or something for like a few minutes. But, you know, you're not going to end up in jail, you know, almost certainly not. So what is there to deter that kind of behavior? I think there's very little. I'm not going to say that people didn't justifiably want Old Testament justice against bankers after the financial crisis, but that wasn't the only reason. You know, it also served the cause of basic justice and democratic accountability, or it would have, to put some of these people in jail and to rewrite criminal law so that the kinds of things that crashed the financial markets couldn't happen again. Well, over the last two weeks, my mind, and I'm sure your mind, and the minds of a lot of our listeners has been on the situation in the Middle East. I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't think we have a lot to say that hasn't been said better elsewhere. But one thing I think I will say is how good it's been to see such a noticeable shift in the discourse on the subjects of Israel and Palestine. For my whole life, this situation has been positioned as something that's too important and too complicated for normal people like you and me to have an opinion on. You know, you've got you've got to be a specialist to penetrate this. And and if you are a specialist, the conclusion that you'll come to is that uh, this is too complicated a subject to have a really strong opinion on. You know, they've they've got to work it out for themselves over there. And despite or maybe because of the fact that we're all supposed to be so vague on this topic, for my whole life, it seems this is the political issue that has been the most taboo. You know, this is the one that has the potential to hurt you. It will alienate you from your friends and family and potential employers. Uh, You will be branded a bigot. You may even reveal heretofore unknown levels of bigotry within yourself. And while all that's been going on, of course, as we know, elected officials in the United States every year go to a conference where they pledge loyalty to the state of Israel, continue to fund the country's military with billions of dollars. Here in Canada, our government is similarly unconditional in its support of Israel's military. So it's been great these past few weeks to see a lot of people, ordinary people, understand that a lot of the prevailing discourse has been used strategically to obfuscate what is a hegemonic consensus. Obviously, people much smarter than myself have uh, struggled with the question of how to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But one thing I feel pretty certain about is that Netanyahu and his Israel is not an aberration. It's the culmination of many trends. And nothing will change unless the discourse surrounding Israel changes. 
And I think that requires all of us abandoning the idea that calling out Israel is a taboo. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, my sense is there's been a tipping point in the discourse, if not, um, I mean, I don't think there's been a tipping point in you know, the policy of the United States, for example, at all, although it's certainly good to see, I mean, it was incredible to see, you know, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Mark Pocan, and others, uh, I guess, last week, deliver those speeches on the floor of the House of Representatives. It does seem like we've reached a tipping point where, you know, I'm not a technological determinist, but I think among other things, you know, uh, when everybody has a smartphone, um, it's a lot easier for people to see what this actually looks like, you know, to see what it's like for people in Gaza, say, or in the occupied West Bank. But you know, like I said, I don't think, you know, right now this is not leading to any, uh, you know, this hasn't led to any policy changes yet. We, I should say, uh, just as we're recording this, just, I guess, about an hour ago, uh, a ceasefire was announced. I don't know how long that's going to hold. But if the pattern we've seen uh, in recent years kind of holds true, there may be a renewed assault on Gaza um, in the next few days or the next few months. Uh, there may not be another one for another few years. But in the meantime, you know, settlement activity will increase. It will expand. And Israel will continue to receive unfathomable amounts of sophisticated American-made weaponry. I think the hope right now is that this change in the discourse that you've identified and, and the kind of corresponding change in, in what you know lawmakers are saying in the United States and are willing to say that that leads to some actual policy change changes down the road. We'll, uh, we'll see. I don't know. I'll tell you something else that's been occupying my mind this week, um, something that's uh, wholly separate from that issue. Um, it's that I uh, I got my vax, my first vax since the last time we recorded. Yeah, although I thought you'd had a vax when we last recorded. No, uh, we, we recorded, I think, the day before I got my vax. So I know that we have listeners out there who have been on the edge of their seats uh, listening to our travails as we try to beat this thing. But you can rest easy because uh, the boys are, I don't know, a week and a half out from being, you know, 80% protected <laughs> against against the novel coronavirus. And uh, y- you may be wondering, how did I get the vax in this uh, crazy system that we got up here in Canada? Well, first, I booked an appointment to get the vax in the neighboring city of Brampton, which would have required like a one hour drive to get out to. They were giving the vax to anybody who wanted it. Uh, We're not limited by postal code. But then the day before, uh, a pop-up clinic emerged at the Ontario Food Terminal of all places. That's where I got mine as well. Oh, you did. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Well, I, uh, you know, put the pedal to the metal, made it out there. In fact, you grew up up near there, right? It's Etobicoke. Oh, yes. I I grew up in central Etobicoke. But my family and I would certainly drive past it anytime we were going downtown. Yeah, countless beautiful memories at the Ontario Food Terminal. I'm sure. I'm sure that. Uh, I'm sure that the people who are listening to this are on the edge of their seats with uh, all these references to places they definitely know about, like Brampton and Etobicoke and the Ontario Food Terminal. Well, let me tell you something. Back when Rob Ford was mayor, I remember we. Uh, tossed around the idea of maybe renting a car and going to North Etobicoke and seeing all of the Rob Ford sites. You know. Rob Ford, during what is colloquially known as the crack scandal, developed such a mythology around himself. You know, there was there was a, a steak king or steak queen, whatever that restaurant was steak called. Queen, that, yeah. that steak queen, where he spoke in the Jamaican patois. There was the school where he taught football. So many great Etobicoke landmarks. There, there were like with... somehow two Ford houses. Like there was his house, but then his house was like, you know, the Fords were like an institution. So like his house was secondary. Like there was also the family house, which was like 
like, mm-hmm. you know, that was like the governor's mansion of Etobicoke. I believe some of the early Ford Fests were held there. That's his annual um, uh, chance to give back to the community. Yeah, a few uh, strip mall parking lots turned into sacred ground by, by the odd Ford Fest. Well, anyway, I mean, we never did take that trip because there was one time when I had cause to go up to Etobicoke and just on the 45 bus, I just saw all the sites anyway. I was like, oh, there's the school. There's this. There's that. Had dinner at Steak Queen that night. But I like to think that we're creating something of that mythos for us with our listeners. You know, maybe listeners, when they're able to visit Canada again, maybe they'll want to understand the Michael and us story better. And so they'll take a trip to the Ontario food terminal. Like, like we're conveying these very mundane spaces with, with such a, a holy aura. Well, you know, we're getting into some deep cuts here, but this all reminds me that you once wrote a, a an article for the Varsity where you took something called Justin Bieber's tour of Stratford, or you used the Justin Bieber. The Stratford, Ontario, like tourism board, has a you know Justin Bieber map of Stratford where like you can go to the skate park at the uh, Cooper site where he used to allegedly. Uh, I never saw him there. Um, I guess he's a little younger than me. Um, you know. Yeah, you could see the steps where he used to busk and you could go to the fucking dive bar where he used to eat wings after his hockey games. I, I remember, yeah, like taking the train to Stratford, Ontario, which is not a winter town, going there in like February where the whole town just hibernates and, you know, walking around in horrific minus 15 degree Celsius weather. And I remember just going on this hour long walk to try to get out to his school and getting to the school and looking at it and thinking, oh, did just he, a school. He, he went to Northwestern, was it? Or St. Mike's? Probably St. Mike's, right? I can't remember. But there was a time that I knew. Far from downtown, uh, both of those. Yeah. Well, I uh, I made it out there and I saw it and it was like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a school. Wow. It's a school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a uh, fair bit of throat clearing from us at the top of the episode. Um, and we do actually have uh, some, some real meat to discuss. Um, do we? Do we, though? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, we do. Um, but I, I did just want to say that we recently hit 1,000 patrons on our Patreon. And to everyone listening who's a Patreon subscriber, uh, I wanted to say a big uh, on-mic thank you. It took some browbeating a couple years ago to get Will to agree to do a Patreon, but I think the peer pressure that I uh, put on him has been uh, vindicated as we hit 1,000 patrons this week. For those on the fence, because we always forget to disclose this, we do do, at minimum, an extra episode every single week on the Patreon. I also have a lot of interviews that I'll put up there and we do a kind of other miscellaneous bonus content. Uh, so if you like the free episodes and want to hear more, there's a whole lot more available at patreon.com slash Michael and us. You can hear us recently talk about the movie Fight Club. Maybe you've heard of Fight Club <laughs> as well as TV's classic Married with Children. Uh, and who could forget Tom Green's Freddy Got Fingered? Yes, the a controversial episode that has led to some good reviews and also one of the worst reviews we've gotten on the... Uh, <laughs> uh, Will, Will's been accused of quote-unquote total Reddit vibes. Um, okay, listen, I don't I don't acknowledge the critics. I don't respond to the critics. <laughs> There's a reason I'm where I am and he's where he is, okay? <laughs> well, coming up on the Patreon, uh, we're going to have some... Uh, hot hot Bill Gates themed content, which is going to include a very thoughtful and interesting discussion I had with the science fiction writer and author Cory Doctorow. So if you want to listen to that, uh, again, you can find it at patreon.com slash Michael and us. I swear it's Springfield's only choice. Throw up your hands and raise your voice. What's it called? Once again. Sorry, 
Mom, the mob has spoken. Luke and I are kicking back. We're opening a cold one. We've had a hard week, and we wanted to look back at one of the things we love the most. Something that is like one of the defining things of our generation, and that is The Simpsons. Now, on this show before, uh, we've talked about The Simpsons movie. Uh, we did an episode a long time ago with our good friends Henry and Bob of the Talking Simpsons yeah, podcast. Shout out to those guys. I mean, true, uh, true scholars of the Simpsons. Uh, so uh, certainly whatever we do here will not approach the work they do. But we will offer some, I think, preliminary thoughts on what the show has meant to us and also what the show has meant to the culture. You got your Homer. You got your Marge. You got your Bart. You've even got Elisa in there. I believe there are other characters as well. And they are the stars of the three episodes that we watched this week. Uh, we <laughs> dipped into two of the episodes in the show's commonly agreed upon Golden Age, which occurred certainly before season 10, probably before season 9 also. And we also dipped into an episode from season 26. <laughs> yeah, you, you know how, uh, you know, sometimes we watch, you know, good stuff that enlightens and inspires us. And then sometimes, you know, other weeks we watch stuff, you know, more often than not stuff that's kind of motivated by masochism and that's, you know, more like punishment to watch than anything else. Well, usually it's one or the other. Um, and I think this is the first week where we've we somehow combined both sensations into the same episode because uh, we watched one episode from season four, one from season six, absolutely golden age Simpsons episodes, two episodes that are just like wailing guitar solos of amazing jokes. And one of which I think is my favorite episode, right. top to bottom, right, right. the one that I refer to <laughs> more than any other episode, the one I think about and have seen and have <laughs> sought out more than any other episode right right so so two, two episodes like that and then one from season 26 uh starring none other than elon musk i don't know if we've ever combined stuff that's so good with us uh something that's so bad in one episode so this one's a little bit of an experiment well i'm sorry to say that we'll probably have more to say about the season 26 episode because it, it is really a horror show from start to finish <laughs> but you know something i'll say about what the simpsons means to me is that I think when you're a kid, uh, or when I was a kid, or maybe when people of my generation or previous generations were kids, there were certain cultural artifacts that teach kids to distrust authority, whether it be the government, the police, the clergy, your principal, what have you. Uh, Mad Magazine is one of those things. Like, Mad Magazine isn't something that has a coherent politics. Um, I think that's one reason why adults don't typically read Mad Magazine, even though there are a lot of talented artists and writers who have worked for it over the years. It is something you outgrow because it's just kind of a free-flowing, all-sides jab fest. There's no real agenda to it. But when you're a kid, it's very liberating to see something like that that tells you, yes, adults are fools and you can laugh at them. And I mean, I, I like The Simpsons more than Mad Magazine, but it was definitely that for me as a kid, something very liberating. And I mean, we've talked in the past about how for a lot of kids, our generation, a lot, a lot of people weren't allowed to watch it. 
for the reason that when it came on TV, you know, there was famously George H.W. Bush said we need more families like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. It was a real culture war lightning rod. This idea that it was somehow anti-family or disrespected the family unit. It disrespected the idea of patriarchal authority. <laughs> well, I, well, I've said this before um, on the show, but, you know, I, w- I was allowed to watch The Simpsons, but I grew up rural. Um, and lots of kids weren't like it was the most common show that people were not allowed to watch. And this continued into high school for me. And I, you know, I wasn't a rural high school, but high school and I guess like a, a small city, one we've talked about already, Stratford, Ontario. Did, did you meet Justin Bieber? No, I did not meet Justin Bieber. I think I, I think he's a few years younger than me. But yeah, I would still meet people in high school who were not allowed to watch The Simpsons. And, you know, if anything, I think that made it cooler. Like The Simpsons, where I grew up, was understood because of this prohibition on it to be like something really cool and taboo. And it's so funny, like watching uh, these episodes in retrospect, you know, we watch Marge versus the monorail, which is the one that uh, Will was just extolling. Definitely one of the best Simpsons episodes, if not the best. And we watch Sideshow Bob Roberts from season six. Two absolutely extraordinary pieces of television. Also two pieces of television that I was not equipped to understand at the time. So watching them again now and actually getting the jokes my appreciation for them is uh, is only enhanced. I mean, I think I, I last, I've only watched The Simpsons, you know, one, I watched kind of classic Simpsons again, like maybe six or seven years ago. So it's happened like one time as an adult. Anytime I've watched uh, The Simpsons as an adult, you know, my estimation of them is, is improved every time. Anyway, I was a little bit skeptical when Will suggested we talk about a few episodes of The Simpsons, partly because it almost feels passe, you know, given, you know, I suspect the the age of many of you listening to discuss these episodes. I mean, how do you talk about something like Marge versus the monorail where, you know, you know, I feel like the majority of people listening have, have definitely seen this, you know, more than once or probably have. Well, what you do is you talk about all the great jokes that were on it. You, you say, you <laughs> say, mean... no, the world needs laughter. <laughs> or you say, I shouldn't have stopped for that haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I was going to say it's difficult to, uh, find a way in uh, to something like this. But I think I think that's really it. And like I said, I remembered every beat of this episode and also Sideshow Bob Roberts. And yet I found myself noticing things that I had never noticed before or that I definitely didn't remember and appreciating them uh, even more. So just like the subtlety of these little flourishes, like at the beginning where uh, you see Lenny and Carl in the nuclear plant and they're packing up a barrel of toxic waste, and then, uh, you know, one of them says, like, where do, you, where do you think these things goes? And then, you know, uh, the other one says, you know, maybe one of the to one of those southern states where the governor's corrupt or something. And the other one replies, oh, either way, I'm sleeping fine tonight. And then, of course, like Mr. Burns and Smithers just like go and put the barrel in like a local tree or something. When we talked about the Simpsons movie, you made the point that you didn't like that the president in the movie was Arnold Schwarzenegger and not Rainier Wolfcastle because... At its best, the show dealt in broad archetypes, broad cultural archetypes, rather than specific topical cultural figures. And that joke with the nuclear waste that Mr. Burns deposits at some park somewhere is sort of an example of this, what made the show so good in its early days. Like, because it was dealing in these broad archetypes, like Mr. Burns is all oligarchs. Reverend Lovejoy is all men of the cloth. Uh, Principal Skinner is all school authority figures like the show leans towards thinking that like the default is they're absurd 
and they don't deserve your respect. And uh-huh. that's why I think the politics of the show are fundamentally sound. And, you know, you can see that in that joke you described where, well, what do you think a default oligarch does? Well, he lies to his employees about where the nuclear waste is going and he dumps it uh, on a playground just to save some money. But also it's like Lenny and Carl, you know, they're aware that, you know, something nefarious may be going on, but they're just <laughs> yeah. like, okay, well, it's not going to be our problem. Like whatever, yeah. like someone else can deal with it. You know, we don't know where Springfield is, but you know, it's definitely in like a blue state. I love the attitude that's like, oh yeah, well, uh, we'll just, you know, send this somewhere where the governor is corrupt. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, well, you live in a place where Mr. Burns ran for governor and nearly won. So, (laughs) well, my work is done here. What do you mean your work is done? You didn't do anything. (laughs) Didn't I? Speaking of just like small jokes that resonated, I never quite registered until now that thing at the end where Homer's trying to stop the monorail and he needs basically a rope to tie the anchor to. And he just sees like a random cowboy with a lasso on the monorail. and He's like doing lasso (laughs) tricks and and he steals it, which is like such a quick, ridiculous gag. That's basically a joke on the idea of setting up an important plot beat. The show is saying, we need for this to be the final plot beat, and you don't even care how we get to it. So we're <laughs> going to give you the most ridiculous way that it could happen. The amount that the show achieves, and I mean, the episode's, what, about 22 minutes long? I mean, the amount of stuff that happens, you know, Mr. Burns is fined for dumping toxic waste, and actually, like the former CEO of Wells Fargo, the judge finds him $3 million, and he's just like, Smithers, get my wallet. And then there's an amazing joke in there that I never picked up on as a kid where he's like oh and by the way i'll take that statue of justice too (laughs) incredible but you know mr burns gets fined uh the city has three million dollars in its coffers and they have a public meeting to decide what to do about it it looks like for a moment that uh you know marge is going to succeed with her very uh boring and commonsensical plan to fix main street which is you know full of potholes But then, you know, demagogy prevails and a smart merchant by the name of Lyle Landley comes along and sells the town on the idea of this monorail, which is this like flashy thing that Springfield obviously doesn't need. So they end up building it. Homer becomes the conductor. uh, And, you know, in the 12 minutes left of the episode, Marge gets to the bottom of Lyle Landley's scam. Homer saves the day. Leonard Nimoy takes credit. And that's and that's basically (laughs) the episode. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, so much happens. Here's another little flourish that I noticed. That I, that this is the kind of thing that you don't understand why this is funny as a kid, but as the monorail crisis is spiraling out of control and Mayor Quimby are fighting over who's in charge in a crisis situation, they're in some kind of like situation room or something. They end up going down to City Hall to look at Springfield's founding documents. And they have this like, you know, charter of Springfield that's like clearly from the 18th century. And then Quimby's reading it and he's like, it says that I'm entitled to comely lasses of virtue true. (laughs) It's like the police chief is entitled to comely lasses of virtue true. And, you know, yeah, it's this like founding charter from like the 18th century. That's the kind of thing that, like, as a kid, you cannot conceivably appreciate what is so funny about that. But holy shit. Well, shout out to the credited writer of the episode, Conan O'Brien, believe it or not. I think this makes up for the fact that David Kissinger, who is Henry Kissinger's son, is the president of Conan O'Brien's production company. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll tell you one other thing I noticed that's absolutely incredible. The 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 plot at the end in the in the third act of this episode partly hinges on the fact you know Homer stops the train with the anchor, but before that the train stops briefly as it's spiraling out of control because it's been so badly designed. Because there's an eclipse, which is, you know, the thing that leads Leonard Nimoy to, you know, he's looking out the window and he's like, the cosmic ballet goes on. Yes, the train is solar powered. But yeah, so the train is solar powered. And it's like, <laughs> I love the idea that Lyle Landley, he's pulled the same scam against the people of Brockway, Ogden and North Haverbrook. You know, he builds these trains that are just like dangerous and they kill people. And yet somehow the train, like, it's not powered by diesel or something like that, or coal. It's powered, it's solar powered. It's like, he's actually also invented, like, high speed, you know, uh, like, like green mass transit, which is an amazing detail. And that's there just because it's ridiculous. You know, they didn't need to put that in the episode. Let's talk about Sideshow Bob Roberts, which is, I don't know if there is like a, a definitive reading on Marge versus the monorail, except that it's incredible. Sideshow Bob Roberts is a more overtly political episode, and there's probably more to discuss there. Well, it's interesting that we finally find out pretty much for certain that Mayor Quimby is a Democrat. Uh, he's positioned in this episode as a Ted Kennedy-like figure. Among its targets is the then very topical public figure of Rush Limbaugh, who is satirized in this episode in the form of a Springfield-based conservative shock jock named Birch Barlow, (laughs) who sort of uh, takes it upon himself to wake up Springfield to the Democrat corruption in the city in the form of uh, Mayor Quimby. Ah, that Barlow's a right-wing crackpot. He said Ted Kennedy lacked integrity. Can you believe that? Yeah, switch the station. I consider myself politically correct, and his views make me uncomfortable. No, 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 guys. I'm not very political. I usually think people who vote are a bit fruity. But for some reason, this Birch Barlow really speaks to me. Good morning, fellow freedom likers. Birch Barlow, the fourth branch of government, the 51st state. You know, there there, there are three things we're never going to get rid of here in Springfield. One, the bats in the public library. (laughs) Two, Mrs. McFeely's compost heap. (laughs) And three, our six-term mayor, the illiterate, tax-cheating, wife-swapping, pot-smoking, spendocrat... Diamond Joe Quimby. Hey, I am no longer illiterate. You know what I absolutely love about this? And again, this is the kind of thing that you cannot possibly appreciate as a child watching this. It's like, okay, so, you know, the episode teaches us that Quimby is a liberal, which, like, always makes sense because, you know, he's clearly, like, he's clearly modeled on a Kennedy. But it's like, we know that Quimby is, like, horrible and corrupt. And it's like, mm-hmm. the right-wing shock jock, you know, he's wrong that Quimby is some big spending, you know, like, taxocrat or whatever, or some, you know tree-hugging hippie or whatever it is he calls him. But it's like, he's not wrong that Quimby fucking sucks. And like, this whole episode is kind of about like lesser evilism because Bart and Lisa ultimately, you know, when Sideshow Bob gets out of prison and the Limbaugh figure, you know, backs him in his run for mayor, Bart and Lisa have no choice but to uh, campaign for Quimby because he's the lesser of two evils. There are a lot of topical jokes in this episode. There's a reference to the Willie Horton ad, for instance, as well as a lot of parodies of like political media. All the president's men in particular. It ends with the kids sending Sideshow Bob back to the slammer when it's discovered that he ascended to the mayor's office only through electoral fraud. Although I think I think the people of Springfield could be persuaded to vote for a right wing populist. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think I think Sideshow Bob could handily defeat Mayor Quimby. You know what's funny though? In the in Sideshow Bob's first appearance on 
uh, the season one episode, Krusty Gets Cancelled. You remember in that episode, Sideshow Bob framed Krusty the Clown for armed robbery so that he could take over Krusty's show. And, you know, something that I didn't register at the time when I was eight years old was that he wanted to turn Krusty's show into a good show for children. <laughs> so, like, you, you saw Sideshow Bob's show, and he's, like, reading The Man in the Iron Mask to kids, and he's, like, <laughs> teaching them about nutrition and <laughs> good citizenship and all that. I was going to say that it's funny that like he he is later revealed to be kind of a Republican demagogue, although I don't know, maybe he's a maybe he's a different kind of Republican. Maybe he's a kind of like um, Harold Bloom style Republican or uh, William F. Buckley. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, yeah, I suppose that I suppose that is the archetype. I suppose wherever Springfield is like it's also probably in a part of the United States that as recently as like 15 years or so before this aired, like might have like still had like one of those handful of like George Rom or like the so-called liberal Republicans left and he could also be in, uh, in in kind of that mold. An incredible bit of Springfield lore that I noticed in this episode is that when Mr. Burns calls together the, you know, the council of like Springfield's greatest reactionaries to discuss who's going to be our candidate to take on the, you know, spendicrat Mayor Quimby, you know, there's some like little goblin or something there. Rainier Wolf Castle is there, which is really funny. That uh, Texan character is there. Yeah, that random Texan character. The really pedantic lawyer guy. I don't know if he has a name. Mm-hmm. But then also randomly, just Dr. Hibbert is there. I, I love that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea that kindly Dr. Hibbert is like, you know, secretly working with Mr. Burns. Like he's part of the in this like, you know, probably solid blue state. He's like working with the dark money super pack or whatever (laughs) so one of the great things about the simpsons in its golden age is that it is this beautiful document of 1990s america i mean i'm hardly the first person to observe how funny it is in the current context i mean the the show is still going on and homer still has an entry-level job at the nuclear power plant and he has a three-child family they own a house and it's a one-income household like i'm hardly the first person to observe that that looks a little strange in the current context it's so weird to watch the late period simpsons episodes and see all of these archetypes from previous generations that have just been kind of like carried over. Um, And, you know, a lot of the archetypes that were on The Simpsons in the 90s were boomer archetypes. They were archetypes from before the show was on. Like, Krusty the Clown is a Jerry Lewis, Frank Sinatra type entertainer. And that type of entertainer, like those guys were still alive when The Simpsons was on in the 90s. And that kind of entertainer now is like, in the distant past. Besides that, the idea of a clown is in the distant past now. <laughs> kids kids don't watch clowns on TV anymore. So, so much has just sort of like been grandfathered into this show and they beca- they've become these disembodied signifiers. Anyway, that's just one of the many problems that befalls <laughs> the season 26 episode, The Musk Who Fell to Earth. Yeah, so let me tell you, watching this uh, after watching uh, the two we've just discussed, I mean, it was such an abrupt shift in my mood. I mean, God, even the way they do like the opening credits nowadays, when I was a kid, I used to just like sit there and like, you know, watch the opening credits and like hum along and stuff. And like, I remember the different couch gags, like when I'd get a different one or see a new one, it was like so exciting. And the opening credits in this one where they've like, they've airbrushed like the clouds and they've changed the font and stuff like that. Couldn't stand it. It drives me absolutely crazy. Um, And yeah, as you said, this is also the episode where Elon Musk guests and plays himself, the results of which are uh, every bit as insufferable as you'd expect. 
a few weeks ago, I saw people batting around this screenshot of J.J. Abrams' recent appearance on The Simpsons. And of course, it was a picture of like J.J. Abrams as a Simpsons character with the yellow skin and everything, but with lens flare, like you see in a J.J. Abrams movie. And I realized that right now, The Simpsons has become like what Andy Warhol was in the 70s and 80s, where he was doing these celebrity portraits on commission. So like, you know, Mick Jagger would give him $10,000, and so Warhol would take a Polaroid of Mick Jagger and then do a silkscreen reproduction and then slather a bit of paint over it, and voila, you're you're a Warhol superstar. Uh, Let's have $10,000. You know, like, that's what the show is now. Like, celebrities come on the show... And they get Simpsonized, and they can make that their Twitter avatar. They're like, oh, I'm a Simpsons character now. And the show, as you pointed out, you know, it used to be innately and inherently skeptical of any kind of authority and of celebrity in particular. In a big way, it was concerned with just like mocking the very idea of celebrity. It's like Krusty the Clown is famous. You know, the show rather hilariously, like everything else, you know, alternates between you know, it's like it's sometimes Krusty is this very like provincial local celebrity and other times he's like this international celebrity. Rainier Wolfcastle seems to both be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but then he's like also concerning himself with like who the mayor of Springfield is. And he's like sitting next to the cowboy and like one of the two doctors in the town. The only <laughs> the, oh, the only credential doctor in the town backing a candidate for mayor or whatever. The show more often than not, when it would portray famous people would, you know, portray them as archetypes and like as archetypes that were there to be laughed at you know as you just said like you know i feel like the simpsons has just become like a rite of passage for like certain kinds of celebrities i remember one episode i watched i don't know many years ago i mean god knows when when this aired but you know i remember when i found out like oh ricky gervais was on the simpsons and like i watched it with a friend of mine in high school both he and i were like super into the office and i remember like we tried so hard to enjoy it we tried so hard to find it funny And, you know, Ricky Gervais just plays a sort of irritatingly stylized, like, Ricky Gervais character. Like, David Brandt or Andy Millman with, like, none of, like, the nuance or the the wit or the humor. Absolutely awful. Um, In fact, I seem to remember that he plays guitar on the episode. There are, like, little songs, which I don't know if Gervais wrote them. But it's, like, in The Office, it's actually, like, a joke. You're laughing at David Brent when he plays his little, like, stupid songs or whatever. And on that episode, I seem to recall, it's just, like, more about, like, oh, let's give Ricky Gervais an opportunity to sing these dumb little songs or whatever. It's, like, the show's attitude towards celebrity has done a 180. Speaking of Ricky Gervais, this Elon Musk episode reminds me of that episode of Extras, where on the show within the show, the sitcom Where the Whistle Blows, like, Chris Martin makes the guest appearance we, we, we have to we have to watch extras we have to do an episode on extras <laughs> but you remember that on that episode where it's like the show within a show is just just set at a factory somewhere <laughs> and chris martin makes a guest appearance then and the ricky gervais character is very against this he's like why are we having chris martin on the show and he and he, he, he comes he comes in he's like hey uh are you having a laugh <laughs> and, and ricky gervais is like chris martin why are you here that's absolutely mental that you're here <laughs> And he's he's literally he's literally there to do product placement for like a Coldplay like greatest hits or something. Well, that's what this episode is like because I, I mean I'm not going to describe every single beat of the plot of this thing, but the the fundamentals are that landing out of nowhere in the Simpson family's backyard in a literal spacecraft is 
none other than the world's greatest inventor, Elon Musk. In the words of young Lisa Simpson. Yes, Lisa Simpson, so wise, so often. Uh, Lisa, who who we hear in the monorail episode, she calls Lyle Landley out and she's like, why are we building mass transit in a small town with a centralized population? And in this episode, she's just like, dad, like... His company perfected electric cars and then gave away the patents. (laughs) He changed the way Hollywood drives. Dad, no! Elon Musk is possibly the greatest living inventor. You're the guy who put wheels on luggage? Oh, bless you, bless you. <laughs> I'm I'm not that guy. His company perfected electric cars and then gave away the patents. He changed the way Hollywood drives. And now he's landed in our yard, on my son's bike and on our mailman's leg. Honey, guess who crushed me? I'll give you a hint. His first name is Elon. Uh, That's right. So the family asks him, what brings you to Springfield? And Elon says, listen, I'm an idea man. I've hit a dry patch. I'm blocked. I'm here looking for inspiration. And he finds inspiration in the form of, yes, Homer Simpson, who is so off the wall, such a ridiculous person that he's constantly coming up with kooky ideas that Elon Musk translates into gold. Through Homer, Elon Musk is able to join forces with Mr. Burns, and together they revolutionize Springfield. They give everyone self-driving cars. They give Arnie Pie in the sky a self-driving helicopter. But there is a catch to Elon Musk's revolutionary vision. He is more interested in saving the world than making money. So all of these activities have led to incredible losses for Mr. Burns' empire. As Mr. Burns says to the employees that he's laying off, your so-called savior isn't interested in anything but saving the world. (laughs) The episode does make some kind of token gestures to like, I don't know, you know, like, oh, Elon Musk is an egomaniac or something like that. But basically, it's just it's portrayal of Musk is totally hagiographic. And it's like, what else would you expect? Musk is like, he's the guest star. And I did look up the AV Club review of this episode, which was written by uh, Dennis Perkins. And I think he has it exactly right. He gave the episode a C and he said, the Musk who fell to earth plays out more like a love letter to Musk than a proper Simpsons episode. It's like some Simpsons writers met Musk at a TED talk, got smitten when they found out Musk was a fan and turned an episode of the show over to him, which would be less of a problem if the episode were well thought out and funny, Musk were an engaging comic presence or the Simpsons themselves weren't relegated to supporting status on their own show. So I think that's very on point. Um, And I was really struck how this episode, I mean, you know, it was written apparently by a, you know, a freelance, uh, a freelance writer. I mean, James L. Brooks apparently said that, you know, apparently Musk was a fan of the series. He wanted to be on the show. He guessed on the show because James L. Brooks had a meeting with him or something. Uh, The executive producer of the show, Al Jean, said uh, they didn't want the episode to be a kiss-ass guest star turn. They, you know, they uh, noted the episode has many jabs at, you know, Musk's egoism or whatever. Certainly a lot less than a Comedy Central roast. I mean, yeah, I mean, the episode literally closes with, you know, Musk going off into space by himself on his rocket ship as David Bowie's Starman plays, which is a song that Musk himself later chose for one of his like SpaceX launches in 2018. It's pretty hagiographic, but I was struck by how the portrayal of Musk is, I mean, literally, you know, exactly how Musk would want to portray himself. The stuff specifically about patents, the fact that that's worked into like Lisa's take on Musk. 
uh, the fact that everything in the portrayal is specifically about portraying him as an inventor rather than a monopolist or a capitalist. The fact that the script contrives a purpose for him to say the words, I don't care about the money multiple times. The portrayal of Musk is exactly what he would, would want in a press release. And it's actually more effective than a press release because it's an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, I mean, for those of us who kind of grew up learning to be skeptical of authority, partly because of The Simpsons, all of that feels like such a betrayal. It feels worse than just a bad TV episode. It feels like your loved one has come back as a zombie. I'll also say that this episode is just bad on the level of, in what universe would Homer ever encounter Elon Musk? Like, one reason the show struck such a cultural nerve when it began was because it it hit at something real. On some level, it was an authentic-seeming depiction of, like, a middle-class family. One that didn't look like the Waltons or the Cosby show or other shows at the time. One where the family had their sharp edges. And there's an episode in the Golden Age where Homer gets a job as a limo driver. And his first client is Mel Brooks, playing himself. And he gets so excited meeting Mel Brooks. And he kind of embarrasses himself with Mel Brooks. And, you know, Mel Brooks is not Elon Musk. And yet, back then, they understood that the only way that a guy like Homer would ever be in a room with a guy like Mel Brooks, because the two of them are in such different social strata, is for Homer to be his limo driver. Right, a subordinate. But here, Elon Musk just lands in the backyard. I mean, did, did you ever see the episode where, a later episode where the Simpsons go to the UK, and I think they're greeted by Tony Blair at the airport, playing himself? God. Like, why, why would Tony Blair greet the Simpsons? It, it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> the show had a certain class consciousness when it started that was, I think, very central to what made it work, and that that has disappeared. Yeah, and I think you can very much see that in the portrayal of Musk in this episode, right? Because Musk partners with uh, with Mr. Burns, and you know, Mr. Burns ends up laying off a whole bunch of people at the plant because he's a profiteer. Musk is offering these like utopian technological solutions or whatever, but Mr. Burns is purely a profiteer. So the portrayal of Musk is like explicitly drawing this dichotomy where it's like, well, there's like these bad capitalists like Mr. Burns, and then there's these people like Elon Musk who don't. Even, they, he doesn't even care about the money, and it's like Mr. Burns is Elon Musk, you know? It's like, you know, you have to make a few adjustments because Mr. Burns is obviously old money and like Elon Musk is rich because of PayPal, but it's like Elon Musk is just, you know, Mr. Burns if he went to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. He's like Mr. Burns, Mr. Burns got really into apps. So did you see that uh, New York Post article that said it it had an interview with Larry Charles. He was speculating that uh, if Kramer were on TV today, he would be in QAnon. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe not if Kramer were on TV, but if Kramer were alive. Uh, I mean, I, I thought that was really funny because I actually don't think Kramer would be in QAnon. You know, like <laughs> Kramer lives in the Upper West Side. Okay, I know that Kramer was like kind of a goofy guy who had all these like get rich quick schemes and i know he was insulated from certain economic realities because he lived in a rent controlled apartment but you know kramer is also like a pretty well-off boomer you know he travels in like pretty liberal circles you know he's friends with jerry he's friends with george Uh, i don't know maybe newman would be in QAnon. he seems a more maladjusted kind of guy but i think kramer 
Kramer would just be a Biden guy. He would have voted for Biden in the primary as well as in the general, you know? I think he would be very appalled by Trump. I think he's the kind of guy that, yeah, he would have been like a Biden guy, you know, not in March of 2020, but in like, you know, March of 2019. Like he would have been super oh, yeah. into Biden. He, he, he probably would have said something like, you know, well, you know, I think that, you know, mayor from uh, the Midwest, I think, you know, he's the future of the Democratic Party. But, you know, <laughs> I'm really impressed with him. But but like, you know, he's got some big ideas and a lot of idealism. But I don't think uh, I don't think he's ready yet. Biden is the man for the moment. That's what that's what Kramer. That's what Kramer <laughs> like, from Seinfeld like, what, would say. What, what we need is experience. You know, <laughs> it's like this Jerry, guy's been Jerry. What we need is experience. Yeah, he know he knows how to work the Senate. OK, and that's going to be important in a hyper polarized and partisan environment. Also, we we know that Kramer wouldn't be too worried about Biden's record on race. <laughs> well, I, like I, like Kramer, I think would be. I post about this, and like my take on it was like I think Kramer would be one hundred percent a like hardcore resistance guy. He'd share a ton of memes from like Occupy Democrats. Like he'd be a pod safe guy, but he'd also be one of those guys that you know, like he's on Donut Twitter. He's buying Krasenstein's memorabilia like unironically. He's on Facebook, and he's like probably one of those people where his like cover photo and his avi are just like the same photo and like he doesn't get that that's weird and it's not how it's supposed to work he probably uses the phrase moscow mitch like 10 times a day and he's got like msnbc on like doesn't turn it off even in his in his sleep uh, i i post on facebook but then um actually Farron cousins the youtuber whose show i've been on a couple of times he had a kind of alternative take on this which i which i think is pretty funny where he said kramer would be q himself not realizing that a call had developed around him <laughs> after he started recording himself talking in his sleep and then transcribing them for his blog. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a winner. <laughs>